Can we do that one more time? As we're preparing our hearts for what the Lord would have us in Revelation 13, I think it, um, it would edify us to do this again. Revelation 12, 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Revelation 12, 11. Well, with that, I hope you've found Revelation 13. Um, you know, every Sunday before I read our sermon text for the morning, I try to remind us that the words that we're reading are breathed out by God. Each week, we're not just reading words that were from God in the past. We're reading what God's Word is to us today. This that we read and hear is the message that God wants to speak to you, Rocky Point, today. Sometimes what God has to say to us comforts us or helps us. Other times what God has to say to us challenges us or confronts us. But whatever the message is, it is something that God has decided we need to hear. And we've heard repeatedly in Revelation, if anyone has an ear, let him hear. So in light of this, I'd like to ask you to do something. If you're willing to receive whatever message God has for us today, take a moment now to commit to the Lord that you will hear him. Say, God, whatever you have to say to me today, I want to receive it. Now, don't say it because I'm telling you to. Only say it if you mean it. But, but if you're willing to let God speak his message to you today, pray, God, whatever you have to say to me, I want to receive it. Let's pray together. Father, we say with Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Fill me with your spirit that I might speak the utterances of God. Fill all of us with your spirit that he might open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. He might exalt Christ in our eyes. Lord, we love you, and we are listening. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. With that, let's read Revelation 13. And since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? The Holy Spirit says, And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, 
and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. John wrote to churches who were being opposed by the kingdom of this world. And he wrote to churches who were being tempted to compromise with the kingdom of this world. Likewise, today, I am preaching to people who were being opposed by the world and who are being tempted by the world. When we're compromising with the world, we need to see that the one that we are worshiping is actually a beast. And when we're being opposed in the world, we need to know that 
God sees the beast warring against us. And so, as he does throughout Revelation, in this chapter, Jesus pulls back the curtain and shows us the unseen forces behind reality as we see it. And even more than that, Jesus shows us how we are to respond to these forces at work in the world around us. Here's the message of Revelation 13 to us. When the beast reigns, follow the lamb. When the beast reigns, follow the lamb. I see two aspects to this in our text today. And the first is that we must endure the war of the beast. Endure the war of the beast. See this in verses 1 through 10. We are to follow the lamb while the beast reigns. First, we must endure the war of the beast. So chapter 12 ended with the dragon, Satan, going to make war on the church. John saw him at the end of chapter 12 standing on the sand of the sea. And now here in chapter 13, John sees a vision of a beast coming out of that sea. So who is the beast? Well, the beast represents how Satan exercises his authority through earthly kingdoms. I say that because what John saw here in Revelation 13 is based on a vision that the prophet Daniel received in Daniel 7. Daniel saw four beasts coming out of the sea, one like a lion, one like a bear, one like a leopard, and a fourth that had ten horns. So in that vision, Daniel tells us those four beasts represent four earthly kingdoms. Most interpreters understand that in that vision of Daniel, the first of those kingdoms was Babylon of Daniel's day, and then the fourth of those kingdoms was the Roman Empire. So when John sees a ten-horned beast coming out of the sea, bells are going off in the mind of anybody who's read Daniel chapter 7. Because what John is seeing is the fourth beast of Daniel 7, the Roman Empire. John is writing to churches who were living under the reign of the Roman Empire. And so this beast that John sees represents the kingdom that his audience lived in. And that's why Jesus could say to the church in Pergamum back in Revelation 2.13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. But there's more to it than just that, because this vision that John sees isn't just the fourth beast of Daniel 7, it combines elements of all four of the beasts from Daniel 7. That's because the beast is more than just one literal historical kingdom. The beast represents how Satan exercises his authority through all earthly kingdoms and all throughout the church age. Satan exercised his authority through Babylon of Daniel's day, he exercised his authority through Rome in John's day. He exercises his authority through kingdoms in our day. Another term for this is the kingdom of the world. Satan will continue to exercise his authority through the kingdom of the world until the last trumpet sounds at the return of Christ 
And heaven declares, as we saw in Revelation eleven fifteen, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. We look forward to that day, but in the meantime, what does the beast do? Well, what we see in Revelation 13 is the beast boasts. John sees that one of the beast's heads has a mortal wound that has been healed. Uh, seems to die, comes back to life. And the whole world marvels at the beast. And throughout history, kingdoms fall, uh, but then kingdoms rise again. The kingdom of the world seems to be invincible. And so those who belong to the kingdom of the world boast in their kingdom. They say, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? I wonder, as you've lived among the kingdom of the world. Have you heard this arrogant boast? Does pride like this sound familiar to you? Who is like our country? Who can compare to our leader? Who can match the power of our military? The beast boasts. The beast also blasphemes. John tells us the beast commits blasphemy. Blasphemy can take two forms. Blasphemy can be lowering God to the place of man, but blasphemy can also be elevating man to the place of God. The kingdom of this world does both. The kingdom of this world lowers God. And I'm not just talking about atheist nations. Some nations value God, but they lower him to where he's below the sovereign of the universe. Uh, They don't bow to him as king of kings. Instead, they lower God to a place where he's a helpful servant of the most important thing, the state. Religion is valuable because it makes for good citizens. The Bible is valuable because it has good ideas and good morals. But when parts of the Bible are inconvenient, they're sort of ignored or thrown out. It's an example of a way that the kingdom of the world can lower God. Uh, But the kingdom of the world also exalts man. John says here that, All who dwell on the earth worship the beast. In the kingdom of the world, leaders are praised and given loyalty that should only ever be given to God. In the kingdom of the world, nations are treated with reverence and allegiance that only God is worthy of. Whether God is being lowered or man is being exalted, it's blasphemy. The beast blasphemes. The beast also rules. The beast is allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Now, we've already seen in Revelation that 42 months or 1,260 days is a symbol for the time between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. It's that that whole period in between. So the whole time that we as a church are called to be witnesses and to be making disciples that whole time, the blasphemous beast 
is reigning. The beast is given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. This text is telling us God has allowed Satan to exercise authority over every tribe, language, people, nation. Until Jesus comes back, there is no kingdom on earth in which the beast is not in some way active. That means that there is no such thing as a truly Christian nation on earth. The only Christian nation is the people that Jesus ransomed for God by his blood from every tribe and language and people and nation over which the beast reigns. Jesus ransoms the Christian nation out of those nations. And he has made us a kingdom and priests to God. And we will reign with him on a new earth when the kingdom of the world becomes the kingdom of our God and his Christ. But until then, the beast reigns. The beast also wars. The beast, we're told, is allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. We saw in Revelation 12 that the dragon, Satan, is already conquered, yet until Jesus returns, Satan is allowed to make war on the church. Revelation 12:11 that we are memorizing, that we just read together, says that we conquer by loving not our lives even unto death. We conquer by being conquered. And here, John is showing us that one of the ways Satan wars against the saints is through the kingdom of this world. This is why Jesus said to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2.10, Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. When those Christians in Smyrna were to be thrown into prison by the Roman government, it was the beast with the authority of Satan warring against them. We see the kingdom of this world war on the saints today. We see it in major ways and in minor ways. In major ways, I mean, just consider how we as a church have just begun supporting global workers going to a country where Christianity is illegal. We pray for those people that they're going to go uh, that they're going to go to, these people who today are unreached by the gospel. We pray that they would hear the gospel, that they would come to faith in Christ. But the moment they are baptized, they will be considered criminals who are unpatriotic and disloyal to their families. According to uh, a, a recent report just this year, 2023, believers are being martyred in Nigeria Church buildings are being destroyed in China. Christians are being abducted in Mozambique. Just in the last few years, 
Christians in Ethiopia and Malaysia were kept uh, from receiving COVID-19 relief because of their faith in Christ. Uh, But we also see the kingdom of the world war on the saints in smaller ways too, more minor ways. Even in our country, by the grace of God, we don't experience uh, the the full-out war that so many of our brothers and sisters experience in other nations. But in our country, uh, Christianity may not yet be illegal, but we see efforts in various parts of our country to pass laws that would penalize Christians for living according to Scripture. So then, how are we to respond as Christians? What does God want for us? As we find ourselves as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, living as exiles and sojourners and strangers in this world, living under the reign of the beast, how should we respond? Well, look at verses 9 and 10. John tells us here, If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Jesus calls us to endurance and faith. Endurance is our response toward the beast. Faith is our response toward Jesus. The call to endurance in these verses is sobering. John basically says, if they imprison you for following Jesus, go to prison. John says, if they execute you for following Jesus, be executed. as, As Americans, we're wired to fight back against oppression. We want to start a movement. We want to acquire influence. We want to take up arms. But Jesus calls us to endure. I wonder, how does your heart respond when Christianity is opposed? Do you respond with aggression, ready to fight back? Do you respond with complaining because you feel entitled to freedom? Or, when Christianity is opposed, do you rejoice? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When the beast wars against us, Jesus calls us to endure. But he doesn't just call us to endurance. He calls us to faith. As we suffer for Jesus, we fix our eyes on Jesus who suffered for us. 
Hebrews 13, 12 through 14 says, So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Because Jesus died for us, we don't have to fear death. The worst thing the world can do to us will only get us closer to Jesus. Think of the old hymn, Nearer my God to thee, nearer to thee, e'en though it be a cross that raiseth me. The shame Jesus experienced paved the way for salvation and resurrection and eternal life. And so we endure that same shame as his followers, knowing that through suffering comes salvation. Through death comes eternal life. Ultimately, we experience the war of the beast because we don't have a lasting city here. This world is not our home. In this world, we will have tribulation, Jesus said, but we respond with faith, trusting that Jesus will bring us to the city to come, the new Jerusalem, where we will be in his presence forever. To that old rugged cross, I will ever be true. Its shame and reproach gladly bear. Then he'll call me someday to my home far away, where his glory forever I'll share. Endure the war of the beast. Second, resist the worship of the beast. When the beast reigns, follow the lamb. Following the lamb means enduring the war of the beast, but it also means resisting the worship of the beast. So starting in verse 11, John sees another beast. Later in Revelation, John calls this beast the false prophet. Uh, And just for the sake of clarity, I'm going to call him the false prophet as well. When you look at the description of this false prophet in Revelation 13, it's not hard to see why he gets that name. The second beast here, the false prophet, looks like a lamb, but it speaks like a dragon. When you look at it, you think you're looking at Jesus. But don't be fooled. What it has to say comes straight from the mouth of Satan. When Satan works through the kingdom of this world, he not only wars aggressively, he also deceives attractively. What we see in Revelation 13 is that when Satan works through the kingdom of this world, he not only wars aggressively, he also deceives attractively. It's just like Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. The false prophet works to lead all the people on earth to worship the beast. In John's vision, the false prophet performs great signs. It it amazes people so that they worship the beast. Uh, But the false prophet not only leads people in false worship, it requires 
false worship. Uh, The false prophet was even allowed to kill those who didn't worship the beast. A major part of life in the Roman Empire was what was known as the imperial cult. Caesar was worshipped as God. Local officials even threatened to kill Christians if they did not worship the emperor. But the worship wasn't just going to a temple and bowing down. Uh, The imperial cult was a major part of the culture and the economy. Uh, Greg Beal writes, Indeed, the imperial cult permeated virtually every aspect of city and often even village life in Asia Minor, so that individuals could aspire to economic prosperity and greater social standing only by participating to some degree in the Roman cult. Where the imperial cult was prominent, it wasn't just that worship happened. Participating in this worship was necessary in order to fit in and succeed in society. And Likewise, the false prophet, John Saw, did more than just influence religion. He influenced all of society. In John's vision, he saw this in verses 16 and 17. It causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark that is the name of the beast or the number of its name. When Satan works through the kingdom of this world, he doesn't only work through power and authority, he also works through the culture and the economy, the society at large. Now, these verses have been the subject of many wild speculations and superstitions. Just this week, as I was preparing for this sermon, I got on Twitter, and the phrase, the mark of the beast, was a trending topic on Twitter, because there was this video that was going around of a woman supposedly uh, paying for her groceries with a chip in her hand. We must read this passage carefully. First, remember, this is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature. In apocalyptic literature, the truth is not communicated in literal language. In apocalyptic literature, the truth is communicated through signs and symbols. All of the details of chapter 13 are presented within this visionary world. Jesus is not literally a lamb. Okay? (laughs) There's not a literal seven-headed leopard with bear's feet, a lion's mouth, and ten horns. And this passage is not teaching that people are literally going to receive something physical on their right hand or on their forehead. This is a symbol. Just like back in chapter 7, when John saw an angel stamp Christians on their forehead with a seal, within this symbolic world, Jesus, or excuse me, John sees a vision of some people with the name of Jesus on their forehead, And he sees a vision of other people with the name of the beast on their forehead. These are symbolic depictions of believers and unbelievers. The ones marked with the seal of God are just Christians trying to live set apart from the world. The ones marked with the name of the beast are just 
people living a normal, worldly life. We need to make sure we read symbolic language symbolically. Uh, But then the other thing to remember, too, is that Revelation is a letter written first to seven churches that lived in Asia Minor at the end of the first century. If we interpret Revelation in a way that would not have made sense to those seven churches, then we are not interpreting it correctly. Uh, They would not have read Revelation 13 and thought, oh, I bet that means 1,900 years from now people are going to have chips in their hand and pay for their groceries. That, That would not have even come across their minds. They would have recognized this is symbolic, and it represented something that was happening in their day already. For example, Jesus said to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2.9, I know your tribulation and your poverty. These Christians were experiencing economic persecution because they were following Jesus. They were not able to succeed financially because they were not marked with the beast's name, spiritually speaking. They were marked with Jesus' name, following him faithfully. On the other hand, Jesus said to the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3, 17, you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. And the church in Laodicea, these Christians were wealthy and successful by the world's standard, and they needed to be confronted by Revelation 13 and ask, how did you manage to acquire so much wealth in a world like this? Again, the main thing we need to see here is that Satan often works through the culture and the economy of the kingdom of this world. Well, the last verse of this chapter is also difficult um, and has been the source of a lot of ideas. Look at verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast For it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. So many people have tried to do all sorts of complicated calculations to try and identify a name that corresponds to 666. And all of them are a big stretch, a big reach. I don't believe this verse is calling us to pull out our calculators. I think this, the answer to this equation, so to speak, is right here in the text. God's not hiding it from us. He says 666 is the number of a man. All throughout Revelation, we've already seen, we'll continue to see, this number seven, which symbolically represents completeness, perfection. But the number six falls short of perfection. Likewise, humans fall short of perfection. And the beast is Satan working through human kingdoms. The beast boasts, the world marvels, but ultimately the beast is a cheap imitation of the perfect king, Jesus Christ. In light of all of this, we can put behind us a lot of unnecessary fear and superstitions. We don't have to be anxious about tattoos and microchips. If your license plate has 666 on it, you're not going to get in a car accident, okay? 
But dispelling those false ideas should not make us more comfortable in the world. The true message of this passage is actually much more terrifying than the conspiracy theories and the superstitions. The truth is, you can avoid microchips and tattoos and still have the mark of the beast on your forehead. Actually, you can call yourself a Christian and still have the mark of the beast on your forehead. Because fundamentally, fundamentally, the mark of the beast is not about what you put on your body. The mark of the beast is about what is going on in your heart. Who do you love most? Who are you trusting in? Where do your allegiances lie? What do your actions say about what matters most to you? What does your thought life say about what you value? Again, if the beast is how Satan wars aggressively, the false prophet is how he deceives attractively. Some of the churches in Asia Minor were being persecuted by the world. Others of the churches were being tempted to compromise with the world. And likewise, we don't just need to endure the war of the beast, we also need to resist the worship of the beast. In the kingdom we live in, we have to ask, what, what forms does this worship take? You know, in our culture, there's a sexual revolution going on around us. And it seems like every sector of society is trying to deceive us. The government, the news, advertising, social media, movies, TV shows, even the medical community. In fact, in our culture, we're even seeing the dynamic of verse 17, this idea that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, these economic implications for you must believe this, you must go along with this. Uh, just as a very tangible example, today, if your business has a uh, Google page, it'll ask you if your business is LGBT affirming, and if you are, then they'll put a badge on you saying so. The culture around us wants to celebrate that which is anti-Christ and wants to incentivize that celebration and marginalize those who do not celebrate. In our country, there's also been a surge of nationalism around us. You know, there, there is a way to love country rightly. Just like there's a way to love family rightly. But even a family, Jesus said in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Following Jesus means no allegiance comes close to our love for Jesus. 
And even our love for our family should look like hatred when we compare it to our love and allegiance for Jesus. In Revelation 13, what we see is the false prophet wants us to worship the beast. The false prophet wants us to value what is American more than we value what is Christian. The false prophet hijacks pulpits to tell you Christians must vote. They must vote a certain way. They must support certain parties and politicians. And we must respond to all of this very carefully as Christians in our world. Let me warn you, we must not look at this through the lens of a culture war. We need to look at it through the lens of a spiritual war. We must look at this through the lens of Revelation 13. Jesus does not call us to war. He calls us to wisdom. Wisdom. Satan is actively trying to deceive us and our children, and our loved ones. And so how we respond to these attempts to deceive is critical. And I I particularly want us to consider how to help the younger generation. We need to understand that children and teenagers and college students are constantly being fed images that make worldliness attractive, And they're constantly being fed arguments that make worldliness persuasive. Uh, Social media especially has become a place where there's constantly uh, people who are trying to persuade uh, those who watch their videos, those who, who listen to them, that, oh, well, this thing is actually Christian. If you're actually a Christian, here's what the Bible really says. Here's what you really need to believe. Uh, media and movies and TV shows are, are constantly giving us these pictures to normalize that which God says is condemnable. And so because children and teenagers and college students, this younger generation, because they are constantly receiving these things, these things that make things attractive and persuasive, if all they hear from you is a response of a culture war like, oh, that's just nonsense. They're not going to listen to what you have to say. You'll lose your chance to speak into their life if all you want to do is just take up sides and throw grenades at one another. We must take their questions seriously. We must wrestle with them about what the truth is, showing them respect, dignity, patience as they wrestle and seek to arrive at what the truth is. And that means also we need to be equipped to help them think through what the truth of Scripture is so that we can, uh, we can um, eliminate the lies, so we can combat the deception. And we need to see how the gospel transforms the way we think about our identity and about our sexuality, and about culture, and about nations, and about everything. Also, 
we need to remember, if you're trying to confront worldliness in them, but they look at you and see you're caving to the beast in your own way, you've lost your credibility. What the next generation needs from us is models of what it looks like to have total allegiance to the Lamb, uncompromising with the world. They need to know what it looks like to live faithfully as followers of the Lamb in the midst of a world controlled by the beast. We need Titus 2, older men and older women, to show young men and young women what it looks like to love Jesus and resist compromising with the world. And we can resist the worship of the beast by the grace of God purchased for us at the cross of Jesus Christ. In Titus 2, Paul tells Titus, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. If you want to renounce worldly passions, there is grace for you. If you want to set a godly example for the next generation, there is grace for you in Christ. So resist the worship of the beast. When the beast reigns, follow the lamb. Endure the war of the beast. Resist the worship of the beast. I wonder, how do you need to respond to the word of God today? Do you need to repent of fighting and complaining instead of enduring and trusting? Do you need to ask Jesus for grace to endure shame for him? Do you need to confess ways that you've been compromising with the world? Do you need to take time to listen to the questions and wrestlings of someone in your life? Do you need to equip yourself with the truth of the gospel and let Scripture protect you from deception and train you how you can help others be protected from deception? However you need to respond, let's follow the Lamb together until we reach the city that is to come. And Revelation 22, verses 3 through 4, becomes our reality. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name, will be on their foreheads. Let's pray together.
Father, we opened your word and we read it. Therefore, we know you spoke to us. Lord, I pray that whatever you said, we would receive and not ignore. We would embrace and not neglect. We would trust and we would respond. Father, I pray, I thank you for the grace that you have purchased for us through the death of Christ, the grace that saves us, and the grace that trains us to renounce ungodliness. Lord, I pray that by your grace, when the beast wars against us, that we would endure, and when we're tempted to worship the beast, that we would resist for your glory until we reach our final home. We love you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.